This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So, good evening. So what I wanted to talk about tonight was uh, the joy in this moment. And this comes very specifically uh, from a few things. You know, you're going along and all of a sudden there's this one thing here and then like a day later something else comes up that relates to that and then all of a sudden you've, you've got this whole ball of wax and that was how this started. Um, Many of you may know that uh, Shunryu Suzuki was the founder of San Francisco Zen Center. And in my lineage, he's like my spiritual grandfather. So his student, my teacher, Les, uh, sort of spiritual father, and then me, and then my students, and so on. Anyway, uh, I have a little show-and-tell tonight. I have two show-and-tells, actually. This is what happens when you become an elementary school teacher. Oh, can I please show mine? Okay. But you see, I don't have to compete with anybody. I'm the only one showing, so this is good. Um, For many years, uh, while I was in the beginning of my Zen practice, uh, I also was practicing tea ceremony, as many of you have heard in the past. And my tea teacher, uh, Peg, was already, I, I, I try to remember, I think she was 78 when I arrived, and she was still kneeling on the ground. So this is hopeful for the rest of us who are you know, getting up there. Um, and we did tea in Peg's little house in uh, that area around Stamford where there's uh, Harvard Street and Bowdoin, and you know, it's just this little tiny area where a lot of the professors lived. So she had one of these, um, what I call a railroad house, where you come in and you're already in the living room at the front door. And on one side going back is the kitchen and the pantry. And on the other side going through the other part of the living room, there's a door and there's a bedroom going into another bedroom. So it's just, you know, there's not even a hallway. It's just two things going back. So when we would go for tea, uh, everything was sort of wide open to us. Nothing was very private except her very back bedroom that she used as a little office. So I saw her bedroom a lot. She was a very neat and tidy person. She was a kindergarten teacher. What can you do? Uh, But one thing that I saw pretty quickly was that in her bedroom, below her little single bed, there was a bookcase about as wide as that door. Maybe it had been a door. I don't know. And this, this was filled with all of her spiritual books uh, she had been into everything, transcendental meditation. She went studied with Krishnamurti for a while. She did Zen practice. But when she finally came to tea, that was it for her. But in the meantime, she was around in the days when Suzuki Roshi was alive. And on that bookcase, all the years that I was doing tea, was this photo of him. And I will actually pass it around. Uh, It's a great photo. And the one thing I really love about it is his expression. He is grinning. He's at a potluck because there's a a paper plate there that you can see. 
And unlike so many pictures that you see of venerable teachers where they're all looking very serious or very blissful, you know, he's just looking like himself. He's just having a great time. But it wasn't just the picture that caught my attention. There's something written on the bottom. And so for 25 years before, or not 25, 20 years before Peg died, I saw this photo all the time. And we made it possible, because we all took turns, for her to die at home. And when I would be by the side of her bed, that bookcase was in front of me, and I saw this picture every single day for months. At the bottom it says, the world is its own magic. And it's a quote taken from one of his talks. And it's not in Peg's handwriting, because it's very, you know, good little kindergarten teacher handwriting. Um, So I don't know who wrote this for her. But it has been on this little founder's altar in my home zendo uh, for my students ever since we've been sitting there. Uh, And I'm going to go ahead and pass it around so that, that you can all have a chance to see this wonderful expression while I continue. The world is its own magic. To me, that is what practice is all about. That is what meditation is trying to bring us to, is seeing how amazingly ordinary and yet incredibly profound every moment in the day is. From the smallest thing to the biggest thing, that there isn't anything that's actually sacred and there really isn't anything that's mundane. You should be able to set up your altar with the same feeling as you go to clean the toilet. That's what he's saying. But we lose this. Children, anyone here who is a parent, which is probably a lot of you, you know this. Children, for children, the world is magic. And it's just as possible that Spider-Man actually exists as that you can walk on the moon by stepping out your front door. Their imagination, their creativity, and their belief in the impossible is right there. But it begins to change. Even in a school like mine, which is just, you know, we encourage questioning and imaginative play, eventually we lose that innocence. I think it's part of the natural development. We sort of have to separate ourselves from mom and dad, from our sisters and brothers, in order to mature. But then we come back to practice. And this is because we realize we've lost something important. So there is a Zen master by the name of Dogen. I'm sure I've talked about him here before. He's like one of the big famous guys. And uh, he lived in the early 1200s. And he... (laughs) For someone who said, don't worry about the written word, he wrote a lot. There's 28 volumes, to be exact. But two of his most famous works, the Fukan Zazengi, which just basically talks about how to sit. And then there's this one called the Genjo Koan. And Koan, as many of you probably know, is, is loosely translated. It's, it's two characters in... Uh, the original Chinese and then Japanese, that is um, something about uh, 
a case, a case in the sense of uh, a treatise, an idea. And, but in the uh, modern parlance, it's a riddle. It's that one, you know, like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Okay, that's a koan. It's not meant to make intellectual sense. You're not meant to solve it with your analytical brain. All right. So the Genjo koan is just one long treatise that ends with a particular koan, which I'm not going to talk about tonight. But what I want to say is the words Genjo have been translated lots of different ways. So while I was thinking about this Suzuki Roshi and the world as its own magic, I happened to come upon a book that has three commentaries on the Genjo koan. And the third one is by a modern master who just died a few years ago. His name is uh, Uchiyama Roshi. And he translated the two characters for Genjo as ordinary profundity. I was reading this going, oh, there it is. That's it exactly. In the Fukan Zazengi, though, there is a line that is my favorite line. There's lots of great lines in that one. But my favorite one is he says, you know, the meditation I'm speaking of is not seated meditation. It's not what we call zazen. It's the Dharma gate of joyful ease. In other words, yes, we take our seat and we do our meditation, but then we spend the rest of our day doing what? Hopefully, we're still in that meditative mind. We take our mindfulness with us to whatever it is that we're doing. So, I think about this a lot, the Dharma gate of joyful ease. When was the last time you can remember feeling absolutely and totally at ease? This is very hard for us. It's very hard for adults, first of all, because we have a lot of responsibility. And it's doubly hard living in this area because between the crazy traffic and the expectations from our work areas and all the things that we're supposed to be paying attention to with our children and all the extra activities we've got to give them so that they can get into Harvard, it's really hard to feel at ease. And then there's the additional problem of being at ease in your own body. So there's the mind part that's hard, but the body part's pretty hard too because we get older. Those of you here who are young, you don't know about this yet, but those of us who are getting older, you know, I turned 60 this year, and all these people kept saying, oh, 50's nothing. Wait till you get to 60. And I kept thinking, oh, right, right, right. You know, complain, complain, complain. Well, actually, I have to admit, I'm really noticing I'm not the energizer bunny that I used to be. So my energy level is not quite as strong. Everything seems to be working pretty good right now, knock on wood. But I have plenty of friends 
who are five to ten years older than me, and things, things are breaking. As I have explained to my young adults at school, we start talking about these things, and, and I say, you know, something, well, you know, it does kind of wear out after a while. What do you mean it wears out? <laughs> I was like, well, you know, when you're 13 or 14, it's all still growing. But when you get to my age, it starts wearing out. It's more like cars, except there's no spare parts. Or if there are, they're hard to get. <laughs> and then their little eyes go big. And then they go, oh, well, and off they go. They don't really get it, but they understand that, you know, you have a problem and, oh, well. So, so to be at ease in our body is also very difficult. And even when we're young, you know, I think especially when you're going through puberty, being at ease in your body is not a simple thing. And those of you who have uh, children, especially girls, who are going through that period of their life, you know, they become other creatures. We all become other creatures because we didn't ask for all these things to happen. Think Things are happening to our body. It's like, wait a minute, what? I, I didn't ask for this. And yet... It's the same thing about getting old. Hey, I, I didn't ask to get gray hair and wrinkles, and that's the least of it. I, I didn't ask to have, you know, bunions on my feet and, you know, all these friends I know who went skiing all their life and now they're all, you know, getting knee surgery. And We weren't thinking ahead. Anyway, the Dharma gate of joyful ease is the same thing as the world being its own magic. Bad things are going to happen. You can count on it. The Buddha said it. There will be suffering. You will have suffering in your life. And it isn't even necessarily going to be a big thing. You know, I've said it before, but suffering is just the distance between what actually is and what we want it to be. And, you know, maybe it's a small thing like, oh, they ran out of chocolate ice cream, so I had to get vanilla. Mm. But maybe it's, you know, oh, I thought my son or my daughter was going to visit for Mother's Day, and they couldn't. Or, oh my goodness, I have just gotten a diagnosis of breast cancer. I don't want that. Or, my best friend is dying. You know, what I want and what actually is by that time are pretty far apart, and that's the level of my suffering. But suffering is the way it goes. But that doesn't mean that there isn't also joy. And that is why I wanted to talk about the joy of this moment, because that's the only time you can actually experience joy, by the way. It's also the only way you can experience um, pain and suffering. Is It's all in this moment. Here's the problem with suffering, though. If I'm... <laughs> one of my dearest students is somebody who worries a lot about the future. She's a teacher now. <laughs> and she knows that she does this. And she was leading a one day on Saturday. And we were talking last week. And, oh... I haven't had a moment to think about it, and, oh, God, I don't know what I'm going to talk about, and, and I'm really getting worried because I have these newer people coming, and I sort of stopped her, and I said, well, you know it's going to be fine, right? 
Yeah, I do know it's going to be fine, but it's not fine right now. <laughs> so then today, I get an email. Okay, okay, I know. The one day went really great. And I spent all that time worrying, and I know that I shouldn't. I'm going to have to work on it. So our suffering, even though it's taking place right here, right now, can often be about that future out there. And here's the problem. Have you ever worried about something that's coming up, planned it out, what you're going to do, what you're going to say, how it's going to be, and then you get there and it is completely different? Of course it is. Because for one thing, you aren't there yet. You haven't gone through all these parts to get there, so you're... You are not you as you will be when you get there. Meanwhile, everybody else is also changing. Everything is changing. So why did you even bother planning? But then there's the opposite side, the past. We spend so much time reliving, rethinking, judging, regretting something that cannot be changed. The only thing you can do about stuff that happened there is in this moment right here. So we tend to do this, though. We, we, we don't stay here. <laughs> We're rushing into an unimaginable future or playing in a terrible, unchangeable past. So can we actually stay here and experience, if not joy because maybe that's a little too much, but at least contentment? Can we be at ease in this moment, no matter what's happening? That's advanced practice. Okay. So there's a very famous koan. It's not really a koan. It's more of a teaching story. Um, And it's by this guy named Mumon, who made this huge collection, the Mumon Khan, his, the collection of Mumon. And there's probably, I don't know, in that collection, maybe 60 of these koan stories. But this one is one of my favorite ones because it is very simple to understand and you will all get it. It's not the one hand clapping one, which I'm still struggling with. This one takes place between two very famous Zen teachers, Uh, A lot of the Zen teachers, you know, in history, we know nothing about them, and maybe they didn't even exist, but they had to have a lineage, so (laughs) they put them in there. But these two guys we actually know a lot about. So there's Nansen, who's the teacher, and then Zhou Shu. And Zhou Shu ends up being even more famous than Nansen, but at the time of this story, he's the student. So he goes to his teacher, and he says, What is the way? And Nansen replies, ordinary mind is the way. Hmm. Joshua thinks about this for a while. Shall I try to seek after it? And Nansen replies, well, if you try for it, you will become separated from it. Joshua thinks about that for a while. He's not quite done, though. He says, well... How can I know the way unless I try for it? Now nonsense about to stick it to him. And he says, well, hmm, the way is not a matter 
of knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is confusion. When you have really reached the way beyond doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as outer space. How can it be talked about on the level of right and wrong? And with these words, Joshu has a great enlightenment moment. (laughs) They all end that way. (laughs) What we have to remember is that this conversation probably happened after they'd been studying together for 20 years. It's about time for Joshu to get it. And Nansen knows where he's not quite getting it. And so he's pecking on the outside and Joshu's pecking on the inside and finally the egg cracks open. Now, the interesting thing about this koan is that there are several that start exactly the same way with almost exactly the same words. You know, what is the way? Or what is Buddha mind? Or what is Buddha? And really, just to bring it into the 21st century, who am I and what am I doing here? It's the same question. It's the question every human has. It's what brought you to practice. What am I doing with my life? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? I only get one, as far as I know. So what should I be doing? I feel like, you know, time is slipping away and I'm getting older by the moment. It's the same thing. It's all Joshua is asking. What, what is the way? What am I supposed to be doing? Nansen gives him this great answer, which is relevant to this day. Ordinary mind is the way. But we don't believe it. We don't believe that vacuuming the rug is enlightenment. And we do not believe that changing a dirty baby diaper is enlightenment. We think that it's some big blissful moment that's going to happen and then we're just going to love everybody and the car is going to hit us on the street and that's going to be the end of us. Because we're not paying attention to the ordinariness which is actually quite profound of our life. Young children, as I said before, they get it. When you watch young children play, they are totally in it. You know, you don't, you don't have to play with them. You can just sit by the sidelines and off they go. They've got a whole script. I had two little girls this year who were three. One of them only spoke Chinese and one of them only spoke Spanish. They were the best of friends. They jabbered at each other in their own language and they understood each other. It was amazing to me. And you could not separate these two. And when they did get separated, they threw little hissy fits. You know, even in the library when they came in, they had to sit right next to each other and half the time would be ignoring the story because they didn't understand English, but they'd be sitting there talking to each other, even though I don't know how they understood. It doesn't matter. They're so totally in the moment. And we would love to be there. But we do have to grow up. We have to do this separation for our development. That's healthy. 
And so there's a price to pay. And the price to pay is a little bit of that innocence, that creative imagination. But every spiritual teacher will tell you, everyday activity is itself enlightenment. I mean, one of the best titles of, of all time this is Jack Cornfield's, you know, after the, after the ecstasy, the laundry. Yeah, that's about it. There's a famous uh, uh, spiritual poem from the Chinese called uh, Trust in Mind. And one of the famous lines, which you may have heard, is taken from there is, you know, the way is not difficult as long as you don't pick and choose. What are we doing all day long? I don't like to wash dishes. Oh, but I like to read my book. I don't like having to deal with this person at work, but I like my job. I don't like this pair of shoes. I wish the traffic were different. If you just pay attention just one day, decide all day, as much as you can remember, to just be noticing every time you say, I like, I don't like, I wish, I don't wish, I want, I don't want. We're doing it all day long. When preferences, which is really very self-oriented, you know, I'm not really caring about what you want. It's what I want, right? That's the important thing after all. Um, But when our self-oriented ideas or desires get in the way, then harmony is lost. Because I don't actually care what you want. I'm only concerned about, you know, number one, and actually probably number only. It's all about me. So, So today, as I was driving here, I was coming down Sand Hill Road, which gets on to 280, some young man was coming off the freeway on his motorcycle and he had it jacked up so he was on one wheel. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, are you insane? If anything tips you over, you will cause not only your own death, but you will probably cause a whole huge accident with the people going, the people coming. But, you know, there's no one else in the universe but me, this is the problem. This is our misunderstanding. So, it gets in the way of harmony. It's not that we shouldn't have desire. Of course we're going to have desire. It's that we can't get attached to it. It can't have to be that way all the time. Because as soon as it does, we for sure are going to suffer. So my favorite example of something like this happened mm, years ago when I went to Plum Village, which is Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, uh, place in, in France, uh, his, his temple and uh, village for his monks and nuns. And at any time that you're there, there's maybe about 300 people. And... Uh, the monks and nuns have been practicing for a very long time. They're very skilled. So the way that they do it is they, they set you up in a small group of maybe about 12 people. 
and either a monk or a nun is put in your family. And you eat with your family, and you do work practice with your family, uh, and if there are any questions or problems, that is the monk or nun that you go talk to. Because, of course, you can't go running to Thich Nhat Hanh every time you have a problem. Uh, of course, you can't do that now anyway because he's not available. But uh, at the time, you know, pretty important guy, you're not going to be going to him. So you go to the monk or the nun. So one morning, we've had our breakfast. We're sitting in our circle on the lawn. And our nun explains that now is time for work practice. And in about... Oh, I don't know, 40, 45 minutes, Thich Han is going to give a lecture in the Dharma Hall. So she asks for volunteers for a couple of different kinds of jobs, and then she says, and I need three people to clean the toilets. Now, I was there with my senior student from here, and we're good Zen students, so immediately our arms went up, because this is what Zen students do, they clean the toilet. Not one other person in the circle raised their hand. Kind of looking around, like, well, that's odd. When finally the nun looks at another woman very pointedly and says, I still need one more person. And that person looks like, you know, she's just been shot with an arrow. (sighs) Raises her hand very reluctantly. And then the nun goes around and assigns the rest, and then we are dismissed to do our job. Now, I admit, they weren't exactly pit toilets, but they were very close to it. But, you know, this was our job, and okay, so we went to it with a gusto. Except that the third person was right next to us the whole time, muttering. I can't believe I have to do this. I wanted to get to the, the... you know, Dharma Hall, so I could get a good place to sit. And, oh, I can't. So, and she rushed through it. Meanwhile, my student and I were carefully cleaning everything, and we're going into the dark little corners, and, you know, it's absolutely spotless by the time we're done, because this is how we have been taught to do things. I go and I look at the other woman's toilet. I cleaned up after her. And all the time I'm thinking... What is wrong with this picture? I see. She wants to get a good seat in the Dharma Hall. Because after all, Thich Nhat Hanh is up on this dais with all of his nuns behind him that are going to be singing, and then the monks off to the side. And then in a big crescent around him are these 300 people. And it's first come, first serve. So this woman wants to get right up front so she can hear everything Thich Nhat Hanh has to say. And I'm thinking to myself, she has completely missed the point. Because that's what he's going to be talking about. Being in the moment of whatever you are doing. But she wasn't. She was already in the Dharma Hall getting her good seat. And therefore, I bet, suffering. Because again, suffering is being someplace else other than where you are. And we do this a lot, too. When you get in your car, usually your mind is already at your destination point. Rather than enjoying the feel of the car, 
the view going by, the people in the other cars, you know, the pleasure you can take in driving well. I mean, do you really remember what it was like at 15 when you first got to drive? Pretty exciting stuff. Now we get in our car and it's like, oh God, I wish I were home. (sighs) We are always someplace, someplace else than where we are. And so 55, 65, 75% of our life is spent not being here. This is a waste. You are not enjoying it. You are not at ease in your body and mind. You are someplace else. And I know that this is true, and I know you do too, because I'm sure at least once in recent time, you have found yourself at your destination and don't quite remember the whole time it took you to get there. (laughs) Where was I? I was not here with the wheel. I can... All right, so back to the story. Joshu, okay, so he says, well, shall I try to seek after this ordinary mind? (laughs) I'm sure his teacher is like shaking his head. No, 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 no. He says, you know, if you try for it, you're going to become separated from it. So last night I was giving this talk to my group, and I have a person in my group who's a very talented potter. This is her work that she does in the world. And we were talking at the end about that very thing. And I used uh, throwing a pot on a wheel for her benefit as the example of what we call effortless effort. You have to make the effort to sit down to do your meditation practice. There is some effort involved in that of finding a time, finding a place, having it be quiet, also staying still (laughs) and not popping up every five seconds. There's some effort there. But there's also, and this is for those of you who are newer, uh, this is the encouraging part, there is also the point at which it becomes effortless. It may take five or ten minutes of sitting and following your breath or letting the craziness of your day settle down, but at some point in your meditation, you take this big breath. It's just, oh, oh, I'm so glad I'm here. That is the Dharma gate of joyful ease presenting itself because now you've caught up to yourself and you are here and nowhere else. And it is such a relief. And then it feels effortless. The mind may go away, and then we may pull it back, and may go away again, and we pull it back. But we don't have to try, because as soon as you try to do anything, off it goes. It is separate from you. It's as if you're looking outside through a window in, and you see it, but you can't get at it. Or even better, think when you wake up in the morning, you've been having some really great dream. And you want to tell your partner. And you start, well, there there was this, wait a minute. 
And the harder you try to remember, the more you can't. But then later in the day, out of nowhere, that's what it was about. Oh, right. Of course, then the person isn't there that you wanted to tell, but that's okay. It's all in there. We just can't access it all the time. And it's the same thing with your Buddha mind. Your very ordinary, profound mind. It's always in there. It's just waiting for you to settle down. It's as if you're walking through a very shallow body of water that has mud on the bottom. If you just keep on walking all the time, the mud never has a chance to settle. But if you finally stop long enough, all the mud settles down. And then it's very clear. And this is what we feel in meditation. When the mind finally settles down, things become clearer. And what made no sense when you sat down or some big conundrum that you've been trying to figure out, out of the blue, there's the answer. And it's often not an answer that you would have come up with. It's as if, it's like, you know, some spiritual practices talk about grace. It's like grace. Something opens in your head and it drops in and you say, Oh, it's a wonderful feeling. But all it is, is that you let go of your little mind. You let your little muddy mind settle so that big mind, the way, (laughs) could plug in to you and you could plug in to it. So, Joshu's still not quite convinced. He's a tough nut. He says, well, how can I know the way unless I try for it? Okay. So here's the part about throwing the pot. As I was talking to my friend last night, we both agreed that when you sit down with a lump of clay and you're spinning the wheel, either by foot or motor, If you have done 3,000 pots, you just center it no problem. It's just you put your hand here, you put your hand here, and the next thing you know, you've got a centered piece of clay, and then you can start doing something with it, and it's just a piece of cake. But if you are like me, (laughs) when I was in college, my degree actually is in painting, uh, and not painting houses, but yeah, painting artwork, okay. as well as biology. I, I double majored. And at one point, the only art course in my first year when I arrived that was available to me as a first-year student was a ceramics course about which I knew nothing. By the time I walked out the first day of trying to center a piece of clay on my wheel... Everything I was wearing was covered in clay. I never really did ever get it. I I finally got one pot, which I have to this day, that's this tall. It's heavy. (laughs) 
<laughs> has big sides, but I did it. <laughs> and I decided that was my piece de resistance, and that was the end of that. Now, my friend who is the potter, on the other hand, she has magic hands. She can just sit down, it's centered, but we both agreed about one thing. There was a whole lot of effort that had to happen for her to get to the place where she was able to do it effortlessly. The same thing is true of anything that you want to learn. You want to learn to play the piano or the violin. You want to learn to ski. You want to learn to swim. You want to learn tea ceremony. The whole first part is about learning the mechanics of it. There's a lot of effort involved. But I will never forget the day I was alone with my tea teacher. Nobody else could come that day. I'd probably been practicing two or three years, maybe, when all of a sudden, when I was done serving tea and was finished and getting ready to get up, my tea teacher said, And that was tea. (laughs) And I realized in that moment that what she meant was, I knew the sequence now perfectly. I knew what was supposed to happen, when it was supposed to happen, no hesitation. And therefore, I was able to forget it in the same way that you can all drive. Again, remember what it was like at 15. You have to know how to hold the wheel. You have to know where all the dials are. You have to be watching all the time and looking in your mirror. And and then there's the, the pedals. I mean, good grief, there's too much going on. Until comes the day you get in your car and you don't even think about those things. Until you have to drive on the other side of the road in another country. (laughs) And then you're sitting there doing the mantra, wide right, short left. Because it's the only way you can remember not to go into the oncoming traffic. This is called beginner's mind. It's a good thing, but you can also be killed that way, so... Once you have immersed yourself in anything, you know you have the way of it. The same thing is true of meditation. You immerse yourself day after day after day in this practice. You come and you listen to talks. You go on retreats. Maybe you read books. Maybe you listen to audio dharma. But actually, there is only one way for this to work. And that is, you have to make the effort to sit down. And it's hard. I am the first to admit it. We have a million excuses for not sitting. So finally... Joe Shu is getting the idea, well, I can't try for it, because if I try for it, then I become self-conscious, basically. I have to become unself-conscious. But the final thing that nonsense says, at first it doesn't make much sense. He says, the way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. 
Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is confusion. He's talking about knowing with a small k. The kind of knowing like, I know some of the presidents of the United States, but I don't know them all. I know the dates of the main wars that we've been involved in, but I don't know them all perfectly. I know a lot of things. I know tea ceremony. I know how to teach children. I know how to read to them. There's a lot of things I know how to do in that way. He's not talking about that kind of knowing. He's talking about knowing with the capital K. The kind of knowing that you experience in your meditation or sometime during your day when something suddenly drops into place. There's this huge aha moment of, I never understood that before. When that kind of knowing happens, it's not delusion. It's also not something you can talk about. It's really hard to describe. I'm not even doing a good job now. But I bet most of you have had a moment like this. And it didn't even have to be during meditation or when you had started meditation because the first time this happened to me was when I was probably 9 or 10 years old and I had no idea what was going on. It's just like... The whole world suddenly made sense. (laughs) And then it didn't make sense anymore. (laughs) You know, easy come, easy go. But it was very intriguing. What was that? And then it happened again in my first year of college. I just had sort of accidentally, one evening, all my friends went out and I decided I didn't want to. And I had a beanbag. This was in the days of beanbag chairs. That's how old I am. Uh, I had this beanbag in my dorm room. And I had a view, if sitting on the floor, I had this nice view of the night sky in L.A., so you can see there weren't very many stars. Um, and I just fell into this reverie. And suddenly I was in the middle of that Dharma gate of joyful ease. I never wanted to get up again. And really, unfortunately, two or three hours later, All of the roommates returned. It was with a very heavy heart that I answered the door. I didn't want to get up. I was so at peace. But after ecstasy, a laundry. It's wonderful to have these moments of deep knowing, but if we hold on to them, then they become delusion. But the opposite is is equally a problem. The not knowing is confusion. And that is why we are all here. Because we have been confused at some point somehow. And we want clarity. We want the water to settle. And I don't know about the rest of you, but this is the only way that I have found that actually works. And I've tried a lot of things. And some things work for a while, and some things work in a funny way, like when I'm swimming, if I get my rhythm, that's pretty great. But I still have to think about swimming or I'm going to drown. The great thing about meditation is I don't really have to think about anything. I can just sit, because breathing is automatic. I don't even have to think about breathing. And so little by little, the mud can settle. 
So the final show and tell, I promised you two things. There's a verse, Mumon always wrote commentary, and then he wrote some verse, some poetic thing to go with the story. And I hadn't realized that this verse went with this story until I found it again, because it's actually on the back of my rakasu. Now, I have many rakasus. I'm a real um, fashion plate for rakasus. <laughs> one of my students actually asked me at one point, finally, well, how do you decide which one to wear? So much for being the simple monk. <laughs> People just keep making them for me. I can't make them stop. But anyway, this one was written on, it was made by my students, and then they went to one of my teachers, Blanche Hartman, who is in the process of dying right now. And this is what she wrote. I'm going to read her. The, the translation I have is just slightly different, so I'm going to read her translation. Flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. The world is its own magic. You can find it cleaning the toilet. You can find it driving. You can find it writing an email. But you have to be there in it. And that is the joy of this moment. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.